0: You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come join our community or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. Everybody else, uh, a reminder that we are in the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 7 this morning. If you haven't gotten uh, one of those little Gospel according to Mark um, journals, we do have a few available uh, still in the foyer. Um, Please put your name on it. Every now and then we find one. (laughs) We don't know whose it is. Um, If you're missing yours, it may be out in the foyer. Uh, We normally just put them there for whoever's missing it to grab it. But if you put your name in it, we'll know it's yours. We'll make sure that you're taking uh, appropriate notes in it, and we'll get it back to you. No. (laughs) We'll just make sure that you are aware that we have it, and we'll get it back to you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together on this beautiful morning in March in Chicago. Father, we come to you and thank you for those who serve among us. Thank you for uh, those who serve in our audiovisual ministries. Lord, I thank you for the way that you are working in them and through them so that Lord, we can hear, so that we can see, uh, so that... Uh, Those who can't be with us can watch a live stream or or watch later. Lord, we pray that you would help them to continue to to patiently serve and and grow in their serving. Lord, we pray for our worship team as well, and thank you for them. Thank you for uh, Dominic and for Angel and Liz as they've been leading us uh, over these past several months. Lord, we do pray that you lead us to the Man, you would have to be our worship director, but God, until that time, thank you for these who are leading and those who are serving, and help them to continue to serve, to lead us to sing your praises. Father, we do think of those who can't be among us for various reasons this morning, and pray that you would be with them, reminding them of your care for them. We especially think of America Walton, and pray for a quick healing for her, that, Lord, you'd give the doctor's wisdom and how to help her. And we pray, God, that you would uh, or just help her to keep her eyes fixed on you. I'm sure that this can just be a frustrating time. But, Lord, we thank you for her. Lord, as we come to your word now, prepare us to hear from you, the living God, the God who has spoken and whose very words are truth. Father, help us to receive what you say, even though it cuts against the grain of what we so want to hear, even though it so often cuts against the grain of what we hear in the society around us. Lord, give us ears to hear from you, hearts to receive what you say. Do the work that only you can do by your Spirit to apply the work of your Son to us. We ask this entrusting this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you're probably familiar with uh, John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. The first stanza goes Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. In 2002, I was doing a summer missions project in Virginia Beach with crew. And while I was there talking with people on the beach, one day I met a man and as I was conversing with him, talking to him about Jesus, he says to me, I don't like the hymn Amazing Grace. So I asked him, well, why? What don't you like about it? He said, I don't like that line that say that grace saved a wretch like me, because I don't like to think of myself as a wretch. Well, I'm not interested in wrangling about words this morning. This man really captures the sentiment of our day, of our society. We like to have high self esteem we like to think well of ourselves we we like to think of ourselves as being pretty good people by nature in fact a recent survey from ligonier ministries in 2022 their state of theology survey found that 66% of americans and 57% of those who claim to be evangelical christians agree that everyone sins a little But most people are good by nature. And it should be no surprise then to to find out that 7 out of 10 Americans and almost 4 out of 10 evangelicals disagree that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. We have a very low view of sin, especially a low view of our own sinfulness. That leaves us in grave danger this morning. You see, if you don't see your own sinfulness, if you don't see the sinfulness of your sin, you'll just treat the symptoms in your life of your sin. You'll treat them like you would treat a a headache that you have with Tylenol rather than Recognizing that it's brain cancer and needs far more radical surgery or treatment. Well, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, Jesus, the great physician, cuts to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of our sinful hearts. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. That's making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. And they defile a person. My main idea for you this morning is that because sin and defilement come from the heart, turn in faith to Jesus as Savior. Because sin and defilement come from within, come from your heart, call is to turn in faith to Jesus, the only one who can save. Last week, we saw in chapter 6 of Mark that Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is our shepherd king who has come to save us, to to seek and to save the lost. And then when we come to know him, he invites us to join him on his mission. And so as we come to to chapter 7, it almost seems like this is a complete break. It, It can... The connections aren't immediately obvious to us. And so you might wonder, why does Mark even include what Jesus says about sin and defilement here? I believe there are at least three connections here. The first is that as Jesus is growing in popularity, again we see that he faces opposition from the leaders of Jerusalem. And so in this way, Mark is foreshadowing for us the cross of Christ that is on the horizon, that's always been on the horizon in Jesus' life. The second, as we'll see when we come to the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, Jesus is about to go and minister among Gentiles. Gentiles. And so when Jesus, in verse 19 here, declared all foods clean, he's doing more than just telling us, hey, you can now eat ham and bacon and shrimp, as great as that is. Now with the coming of Jesus, he establishes a new covenant, making the old covenant obsolete, as Hebrews 8 says. And so those dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles have been broken down so that we can be one flock in Christ. There's a third connection as well. Back in chapter 6, verse 52, we read that the disciples didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. And so this is is a theme throughout this section and all the way into chapter 8 that the disciples are not understanding. As we see in verse 18 of chapter 7, Jesus, when when the disciples come to him and, and ask him about the parable, he says, Then are you also without understanding? Comes to its head when... Peter says to Jesus, hey, you are the Christ, the son of God. And then Jesus starts talking with his disciples and says to him, all right, I'm the Christ and I'm going to die on the cross. And the disciples, in fact, Peter then begins to rebuke Jesus because he doesn't understand. Well, what doesn't Peter, what don't the disciples understand? They don't understand the heart of the problem. And so they don't see why Jesus should need to go to the cross. If you ask people today, what's wrong with the world? You're likely to get all sorts of answers. And since it's an uh, election year, you're likely to get... You know, somebody who's a progressive, they're going to tell you the conservatives are the problem. If you're a conservative, they're going to say the progressives are the problem. They're going to be finger-pointing, and everybody else is what's wrong with the world. Years ago, a London newspaper asked that very question. What is wrong with the world today? To which Christian author G.K. Chesterton famously responded very simply yet profoundly, dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world today? I am. What's wrong with the world? We are. We are sinners who have gone our own way rather than following God's way. You see, if you don't Recognize that you are a sinner. If you don't see the sinfulness of your own sin, you cannot comprehend your own wretched estate. You will not see the need for Jesus. You will not see the need for Jesus to go to the cross. The cross will be foolishness to you because you'll think that rather than looking outside of yourself for salvation, you'll think all the problems are out there. So I need to look inside myself. But Jesus tells us the opposite. Tells us the problem isn't out there, it's in here. So there are four truths that Jesus gives us about our own sinfulness in these verses. The first truth in verses 1 through 4 is that in sin we are defiled before God. Notice the religious leaders confront Jesus, probably trying to find fault with him because his disciples are eating with defiled hands. And, and as Mark explains, that means they haven't washed their hands. Now, their concern was not about hygiene. You know, Louis Pasteur would come along many centuries later. But let me take this opportunity to remind you, we should care about hygiene. Hygiene. I want to encourage you, wash your hands well, the stomach bug's going around, there's all sorts of other things, and so we want to be wise and not spread sickness to others, but that wasn't their concern at all. They were concerned rather about ceremonial uncleanness, about ritual defilement. That's what Mark explains in verses 3 through 4. That's why they go to these great lengths, even literally baptizing their hands, immersing them in water to cleanse them. They did not want to be defiled, and they thought defilement was outside of themselves. Notice Jesus never denies the reality of ritual Defilement. He never denies this reality that we are unclean in and of ourselves before God. Like them, Jesus knew that God called his people to be holy, and the only way that we can dwell in God's presence is if we are holy. And the reason for that is because God himself is holy. And so, a proper view of defilement has to begin with a right understanding of God. And there's only one attribute in all of scripture that is said three times of God in succession. You'll find it in Isaiah 6 where it says that God is holy, holy, holy. You'll never hear that of any other attribute of God. And the reason why Isaiah says God is holy three times is because in Hebrew they didn't have exclamation marks. So to show emphasis, you would repeat something. But notice God isn't merely holy. He's not merely holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. The idea is that God is completely and utterly and thoroughly and perfectly holy, infinitely holy. There is no unholiness in God at all. He is completely righteous and perfectly pure. This is why ritual defilement is such a problem. See, we're sinners. We're unclean before God in our sins. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God calls his people to be holy. And we even see holiness in the whole temple structure that God developed. Whether it be the tabernacle, which was the tent, or the the more permanent temple. It was a system of graded holiness. So you had within the temple, this inner sanctuary, the the most holy place. And only the most holy man in the nation, the high priest, could enter the most holy place once a year. And when he entered, he had to bring with him sacrificial blood to make atonement. And then outside of that, you had the holy place where only the priests could come. And then outside of that was where anybody else could come from the nation. So there were curtains dividing God from the people. And the reason for this is because unholiness, defilement, is contagious, much like dirt is. Have you ever noticed you cannot... You know, make something clean as easily as you can make it dirty. I mean, imagine if you just went to the store and bought yourself a brand new white cloth uh, sofa. You're not going to invite the little neighbor boy who's out there playing in the mud. And and he's all sweaty because it's hot outside. You're not going to tell him, hey, come on in, sit on the couch. It's going to make you clean. No, he's going to touch it and leave indelible marks on that couch. And your brand new couch is going to be ruined. It's the same that God won't let those who are defiled into his holy presence. We would say he wouldn't let them into heaven. Likewise, those curtains kept God from us. You see, as scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. In his holiness, God's holiness burns in wrath toward all that is sinful, all that is defiled. And so if God were to come into the presence of sinners, God would consume us in an instant. As God's people, the Israelites were to be holy so that they could represent God and so that they could dwell in God's presence and God could dwell among them. And that's what sets up the confrontation in verses 5 through 8. Where we come to our second truth, it's that sin corrupts our worship. Verse 5, the Jerusalem leaders asked Jesus why his disciples aren't keeping the tradition of the elders. See, they understood that the Old Testament didn't specifically say that you had to wash your hands before you eat. Instead, this was a tradition. These traditions were passed down as an attempt to preserve holiness. Well, Jesus didn't have a problem with their tradition per se. He he didn't care that they were washing their hands. The problem was that they were teaching their traditions as if their traditions were God's commandments. They were really becoming legalistic. They, They were becoming traditionalists. And this is actually... A problem that we can all easily fall into. Theologian Yaroslav Pelikan years ago said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See, the problem is that they were no longer walking, trusting in God and obedience to him. They were substituting their traditions... Obeying God. We see this all around us today. You'll never find a single person, even the, the most ardent supporter of moral relativism, they still have norms of right and wrong. You'll never find a single human being that doesn't have norms because it's part of the way that God created us. And so if you keep those norms, you're considered virtuous. Well, as Daniel Strange observes in his excellent book Making Faith Magnetic, it's not merely enough to keep the norms. I mean, as exhausting as that is just to keep them as it was with the Pharisees. So today, it's exhausting. You have to try to show other people that you are virtuous. We call this virtue signaling you know it's not enough for companies to embrace and celebrate for instance the moral revolution no they've got to post themselves doing it online You know, they've got to make sure that everybody knows they're using the preferred pronouns, that they're supporting drag queen story hour at the library. This is the new orthodoxy, a new doctrine that has been substituted for the commands of God. Just like the Pharisees and religious leaders were doing. And notice how Jesus labels them. Verse 6, he calls them... Hypocrites. This is the only time in the gospel according to Mark that Mark uses the word hypocrites. And originally the word meant a masked stage actor. In other words, they looked good on the outside. And so it is for a hypocrite. Hypocrites look good, look like they're clean. But inside they're full of dead bones as Jesus says in the gospel according to Matthew. You see, what we end up doing is substituting our traditions for the commands of God. You know, as evangelical Christians, it's really easy for us today to point the finger at everybody out there until we find out we've got three fingers pointing right back at us. Why? Because it's so easy for us likewise to go through the motions it's so easy for us to worship God with our lips when our hearts are far from him. It's easy to, to come and, and gather with the church every week and to sing heartily God's praises and to listen to the sermon and even give a hearty amen to the sermon. And then to go out and to serve others and even tell others about Jesus. While oh, yet we ourselves may be unsaved remember when I was in college, one of my friends had dated a girl, and so as I was talking with her and she's sharing how she came to know Jesus with me, she talked about how she grew up in church, and she just knew it was the right thing to do to go out and share the good news of Jesus with others. So she's out evangelizing people, but she came to see she didn't herself even know Jesus. We can do all the religious things, but yet our worship is corrupted by our hearts being far from God. There's a, subs- there's, a, there's a danger of substituting our religion for genuine heart surrender to God. But as Jesus says, that's in vain. It's unacceptable to God. Which brings us then to our third truth that Jesus teaches us. It's that in sin, we reject God's commandments. As Jesus says, and I'm sure the religious leaders didn't enjoy this, Jesus says, you want to know what you're good at? You're good at sinning, disobeying God, and substituting your traditions for what obedience truly is. Isn't that what we all do as sinners? We disobey God's commandments. It's so easy to do. Remember when I was a child, maybe about 10 or 11 years old, I think it was my sister brought home something from Sunday school and it said on it, Jesus is Lord. Well, I'm ashamed to say that I took a pen and wrote on there the word, simple word, not. I didn't know Jesus yet. And so I wrote on there, Jesus is not Lord. My mom came and asked me, and I think she knew the answer. Did you write that on there? I didn't want to get found out. So of course I lied to my mom and said, no, that wasn't me. You Realize I just broke three of the commandments really easily right there. James 2.10 tells us whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. The problem is that we're lawbreakers. That was the problem with the religious leaders. They were lawbreakers. God had made very clear to them in Exodus 20 that you are to honor your father and your mother. And there, there's a promise that comes to it that. If you honor your father and your mother, you'll live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. But there was also a warning that's in uh, Exodus 21, verse 17, that those who don't honor their parents, those who despise their father and mother, were to be put to death. Why? Because God is the one who puts the authorities over us, including our parents. That doesn't mean everything they do is right, but we're still to honor those whom God puts over us because by so doing, we honor God. Well, the religious leaders were substituting their their Corbin laws. This vow that you were devoting something to God. And so if you devoted something to God, they were saying you could no longer help your parents with that if they were elderly and in need. The point that Jesus was making to them, and to us as well, is that our traditions can easily be substituted for obedience to God. And we use those traditions to, to justify or excuse our disobedience. Now, you might think, well, that's not really all that big of a matter. I mean, so often we think of sin as nothing more than sort of a, a little peccadillo, a, a minor infraction, sort of like if you forgot to put the seat down after you went to the washroom. You know, yeah, that can easily be forgiven. Just remember to do it next time, Right? Listen to how the Bible describes our sin. Sin is transgression. It means it's an intentional breaking of God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4 says, Sin is lawlessness. Likewise, you go to Genesis 3 and you see Adam and Eve grasping for the fruit. What were they doing? They were striving to be equal with God. And so when we sin against God, what are we doing? We're claiming that we have the right to determine right and wrong rather than God. Likewise, sin is described as a trespass. In other words, we go beyond the boundaries that God has given us for our good, the good boundaries that keep the world from going into utter chaos as we see in Genesis chapter 6. Likewise, sin is wickedness. It, it is a perversion. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is waywardness. It's choosing to go your own way rather than God's way. Sin is rebellion against God. In other words, sin is a form of cosmic treason. It is a stain that we cannot remove. And so sin always defiles and always corrupts. And that is why God's standard is 100% obedience. I remember when I was in my undergrad, I took Calculus 3 and I look back and I don't remember a single thing from Calculus 3. It was so hard that nobody in the class was even passing. So our professor gave us such a steep curve that I went somehow from an F to a C. That's the only way I passed that class. Friends, God never grades on a curve. God is a holy judge. 99% is failing. 90% is failing. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't even come near that. We miss the mark. God's standard isn't merely a set of rules. God's standard is a person. Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed his father 100%. Now, let me be clear. God has made us in his image. And so none of us are as utterly depraved as we possibly could be. When I mean, you look at Adolf Hitler, he didn't kill his mom. You know, nobody's you know as bad as they possibly could be in this life. And yet sin has corrupted every fiber of us. There's nothing that isn't depraved, nothing that isn't corrupted by sin. Our minds, our wills, our desires, our affections, our words, our actions, everything is corrupted. That is why we are slaves to sin, dead to sin, enemies of God apart from Christ. Or as Paul says in Romans three, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. No, not one. It's as if sin pumps through our veins and seeps out of our pores, for every and touches everything we do. There's a reason for that, as Jesus says. It's because it's coming from our innermost being. Now what Jesus tells us here is not the news that we like to hear about ourselves. But in our fourth truth that Jesus gives us, it's that sin comes from our hearts. Jesus makes clear it's not what you eat. It's not what's outside of you coming in that defiles you. Because it doesn't go into your soul. It doesn't go into your heart. It passes through literally what Jesus says. It goes into the latrine, into the sewer. Now Jesus isn't saying what you eat isn't important. He's not telling you that you can't be corrupted by outside influences on you. Rather, Jesus' point here is simply that sin comes out of our innermost beings, comes out of your heart. And what he says here agrees with the rest of what Scripture says, Jeremiah 17:9 says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick." You see, at the core of our being, it's as if we have a metastasized cancer that's spreading everywhere in everything we do." So the result is, Jesus says, verse 21, is we have evil thoughts and intentions. There's sexual immorality, that would mean lust, that would mean pornography, that would mean fornication, that would mean homosexuality, any sort of sexual immorality. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, that is, being discontent with what God has given you and longing for what someone else has. Wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, or or could be greed, slander, and that would include anything, gossip, any sort of speech that tears others down, pride, foolishness. As Jesus says then, all these evil thoughts, all these evil attitudes, all these evil words, all these evil actions come out from our hearts and defile us. It's like a polluted fountain. It's getting on everything that we do. Now we might wonder, why is it that Jesus spends so much time driving home our sinfulness? The answer is because if you don't see your own sinfulness and how it's affected you, if you don't see that sin is ultimately the problem, the cross of Christ will be foolishness to you. You might think that you can morally reform yourself, but you'll never turn to the Savior and surrender to him. But here's the reality, we desperately need God's free grace. You can't change your own heart. Only God can give you a new heart. Only God can put his spirit within you. And he does so as a gift of his free grace. Purchased in the blood of Christ on the cross. You see, we need to see how utterly sinful we are. We need to see just how dark our sinfulness is in order to see the good news, how wonderful the good news of Christ is. This is why the cross of Jesus, the resurrection is the only answer. Only Jesus can cleanse us deep within So this morning, if you are feeling guilt over your sin, if you are coming to recognize your own sinfulness, don't try to hide it. Don't try to run. Instead, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, who died on the cross so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Don't think that you can somehow pay the debt or make God happy with you. Instead, recognize Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. It's Jesus who alone can wash it white as snow. As we read in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is your uncleanness, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you haven't today, lay hold of the Savior in faith. Trust in him and you will be reconciled to God. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, you know, it's really easy to, to start to think that, okay, yeah, I confessed my sin back when I was converted, and now I'm moving on to something else. This isn't something we move beyond. Throughout our lives, the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of our sin. Why? Because the Christian life is all about repentance, this is how we grow. You see, when you trust in Christ, yes, you are forgiven. You are declared righteous, but you haven't yet arrived. You're still going to struggle with sin throughout your life. Final salvation is still in the future. The problem is that we, even as Christians, can fall into what's been called the gospel gap. We've got a picture up there for you from Jack Klumpenhauer called the gospel gap. What happens is that we, as we grow, begin to see God's holiness more, and we begin to see our own sinfulness more. And what do we do? Well, we fail to have the gospel grow in our minds and hearts. And so there becomes this gap that we start to fill in, maybe with our own good deeds or something like that. But we begin to lower God's norm. We lower God's standard And so we excuse ourselves or we justify ourselves. Even as we continue in sin, we begin to compare ourselves with others and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not as doing what she's doing. Or on the other side of it, you begin to see your sinfulness and you despair. You start to... You know, you start to feel the guilt and the shame and the fear, and you live in it. So there's no assurance in your life. Instead, you're kind of in a vicious cycle of shame and guilt rather than forgiveness and freedom. Well, what happens is if we have a low view of our own sinfulness as we justify and excuse ourselves, we begin to blame everybody else for the bad things in our life while we act as if we've done nothing wrong. And so we don't grow spiritually. Instead, you become legalistic and judgmental. You gossip about others. You slander others. And what begins to happen is this erodes love for one another. This erodes our relationships. It begins to erode church unity because we're no longer dealing with one another with love and grace and truth, but instead attacking one another. You might even go through the religious motions, but you failed to live by the love and grace of God. So, what we need instead is for the gospel to be growing in our minds, to rightly see God's complete holiness, to see our own sinfulness as it truly is, our desperate sinfulness. And then, as the gospel gets bigger, what do you do? You cling in faith to the cross of Christ and rejoice in the great things that your Savior has accomplished for you. And you live in light of what he has done, in light of the love and grace of God toward you, so that you then can treat others with love and grace. And as you cling to the cross, as the gospel grows in your mind and in your heart, you will sing with all your might, with all your heart rejoicing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us all. Help us all to see your holiness, to see our sinfulness, and to cling so tightly to the cross of Christ. Thank you for your love that will not let us go. God, thank you for your promise that if you began a good work in us, you will bring it to completion. God, until then, pray that you would help us to accept the truth about ourselves, but to let that lead us again and again to the cross of Christ and to your grace. And then help us to share that good news with others. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.